I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to All Stats, Aren't We? A very cheerful podcast in which Leeds fans <laughs> cast their combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm Darren Driver, the uh, what the hell can you say about that really, of the podcast, and I'm joined today by the, well, we'll just approach it like we always do, because we're professionals, damn it, of the podcast. It's John McKenzie. John, how you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I feel okay. I feel okay. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll talk about the match itself. I did think we had a result like this in us, uh, and so maybe I'm less despondent than the rest of the fan base after their game against Manchester City. But yeah, I don't know. How, how about you? How are you feeling? Yeah, I agree that this is something that was always a possibility in a game like this. But um, as I kind of said in the Spaces chat before the game, I hate I hate the build up to these games against the really the, the really big really big sides because I just think there's always always a chance that you're going to take a real pound in in one of them, and that just doesn't feel like something that I particularly look forward to. Um, although having said that, I would rather get done seven nil by Manchester City than than, you know, six nil by Sheffield Wednesday or seven three by Nottingham <laughs> Forest or or some of those other results that we've seen in the past. So um that is slightly more acceptable I, I, I guess. But yeah, um I wasn't able to watch the game live. Um so I watched this morning uh, knowing what the result was already and um, that didn't really help my mood. <laughs> <laughs> I must say that I also did not enjoy us getting hammered. No, of course, no. But I do think that it's fair enough for people to be annoyed and upset about it if they want to be. I think there's a lot of people who go around who suggest that because things have been worse that you can't ever feel bad about bad things happening, which I think is just a nonsense position. Mm. I think the fact that we once were bad and now we are bad in a different way, but in a higher league doesn't stop us from necessarily not feeling the emotional impact of that. So I guess for me, the big thing is, is that I think a lot of people are seeing this as a forecast for us being bad in the future. Mm. Whereas I think I see this as being part and parcel of what our system allows in certain games. And we saw it last season and we were 
fine last season and so I guess for me I'm, I'm sort of treating this as one of those outlier cases that doesn't really say anything about the overall um, the level or uh, performances that we've had recently but it's just something that you sort of have to take and move on and try and rationalize it by saying well this is the way that our system sort of is is geared and sometimes it goes wrong and that this is one of those times i don't think that we need to throw out the the proverbial baby with the bathwater over everything on this one i broadly agree with that i sp- i suppose that that just means that you have to go through that bit where you just feel gutted or where i just feel gutted about the performance i do feel gutted about the performance as well as the result i because I do think we were pretty abject um, last night, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about that in more detail. But but I agree. I I try as often as possible to disconnect one result and performance from any other because because I, I just don't think it's helpful to think about like form particularly. I don't think that's a particularly helpful thing to think about. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to get into some of the some of the weeds of that. And and as we've been doing in some of these episodes where we've had a lot of fixtures together, um, we'll be splitting the episode again. So John, you'll be leading on the review of the the City game last night and then I'll take over for the Arsenal preview so without any further ado I I suggest that we get digging in the mud and and see what we can come up with Yeah, I don't think I'll start off with a game summary. We lost seven, uh, we conceded seven goals against Man City. But yeah, let's have a conversation. Big questions, I think, this this week, because I think there are big questions to be asked and there's not really much uh, much at the level of sort of minutiae to dig through. It's, it's going to be these sorts of big questions. So question one, was that the worst performance we have seen under Marcelo Bielsa? I think this is a difficult question to answer and we had a bit of a a chat about this already this morning uh, in, on Twitter, um, you and I, but I think the position that I've come to is that no, it's not our worst performance under Bielsa. I think we've been worse under Bielsa and I think we've been worse this season under Bielsa um, in games where you would have expected us to be competitive or to have had a really good chance of taking something from the game and where we didn't. And I'm particularly thinking about the Southampton game where I think we were absolutely abject um, and um yeah i think there have been others like that i think we were i think we were worse than we were yesterday in the norwich game but we were playing against a side who in norwich who just weren't up to much so it it wasn't exposed as much what i will say about yesterday um and i think this is where i've landed on this is that yesterday was the game in which the golfing class between the two teams on the pitch was most obvious out of any Bielsa game that I've ever seen, that that there was no point where anything, and Bielsa said this himself, there was no point where anything we tried to do even remotely worked or got close to working. So, um, But I, I do think that's as much to do with how good Man City were, and I have seen some suggestion that they weren't very good, and I think that's a nonsense. I think I think they were... They were superb. They were. I. I. They. They played at, at um, a really high level of their ability, and and it it didn't. It meant that they didn't need any enormous individual performances. Although I do think they had a couple, but because the whole team structure and system was working so well against us, um, that it, it was. You know, if if I if I was watching that and it was not Leeds on the receiving end of it. I would have been purring about it because they were absolutely magnificent. Um, but I but I do think that, that yeah, if, if you look at it, that even in games where we've been turned over heavily by, by quote-unquote big teams, 
there have been times in those games when we've been had spells where we've been on top or we've had spells where we've caused them tr- trouble or we've had spells where we've been able to stop them from doing the things that they do well. And I don't think we were able to do any of those things at any time last night. Yeah, I tweeted out from the All Stats on We Twitter account this morning. Just I had a look at the PPDA. So PPDA is passes allowed per defensive action. So basically, how many passes are you able to get away before the opposition are able to do anything like an attempted challenge or tackle on you and leads this season of top to the tables according to understat with uh, i think it's about 7.5 ish figure around that that's uh, the lower the number the better for this thing obviously because you want fewer passes before a defensive action is made uh, and we're top of the table for that this season um and yeah man, man city are sort of maybe two passes a little uh, below below that so around nine usually and i noticed in the game yesterday leads were allowing 27 passes before they were able to make a defensive action which is just in- incredible it's like what's that four 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 times as many as as usual and that is just testament to the quality that the city have the ability for them to just keep the ball and play around a press as intense as, as Leeds. So I think it's worth just sort of pointing that out because I think a lot of people sort of think, well, you know, occasionally we had a few times when we moved the ball into their attacking, into their third, defensive third. And, you know, we could have maybe, if if, if Harrison had made some better decisions, then we might have had a chance. But I think you, you've just got to accept that this is the way that City play. They play a very aggressive form of football. They press really high. They leave themselves exposed at the back. And usually you'd expect some teams to cause them problems. And I think Jack McCormack, who we spoke to in the preview podcast, said, you know, this could be a 6-3 game where City leave themselves exposed at the back, but they know they're going to score more goals than than the opposition. And we weren't even able to generate decent chances really from from those counter-attacking moments. And so we put up 0.2 XG according to Statsbomb, which is just nothing. So, yeah. I, I echo what, what you're saying. It's it's easy to take a game like this and be like, well, they didn't have to do much. We messed up a few times for some goals and et cetera, et cetera. But this was, this was the performance of a very, very good team um, at, at the height of their powers. And I think it's worth saying that. The other thing that I was thinking about is, am I being influenced here by the scoreline? Because obviously 7-0 is an ugly scoreline. But I, I think that, that if City had have gone in at halftime at 3-0 and then just decided to put the ball in the fridge for the second half, uh, like they did against Man United, I think I would have still been saying the same things because they they would have been very easily able to keep the ball for almost the entirety of the second half and control the game in much the same way. So I don't think I'm being unduly influenced by the scoreline either. Yeah, and to be honest, they brought off a lot of their players in the game and brought on much weaker players just to, to rest up. So yeah, it wasn't as if they were really trying to hammer us either. But in terms of the question itself, the worst performance, you've distinguished quite well, I think, between you know what is it that you're looking for in a worst performance is it is it a performance like yesterday's where we just weren't able to get anywhere near the ball or do anything to the opposition or is it a performance where actually like you say the Southampton game stands out when it's a team that you should really should be able to do something against and they have the same sort of effect and yes okay Southampton only scored one goal but they have much they they have far fewer elite players in their in their squad and so that's almost to be expected and i think that for me i would say that the southampton performance was worse than than the man city one precisely because they sort of they they almost looked like man city against us in terms of the way that they were able to keep the ball press as high up and and smother any sort of attempts to to get forward well at the end of the season the 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 results which which um, decide where we end up this season are going to be the results against sides like Southampton, not against sides like Manchester City or Liverpool or whoever, yeah. 
Right, question two. I've seen a lot of people complaining about man marking, not least because Josh Hobbs likes to complain about it a lot in the All Stats Aren't We DM. So what do you think? Is our issue man marking? Is that the is that the issue here? I think I think it can appear to be one issue that we have. I don't think that fundamentally man marking or zonal marking are are better. Um I think that, that our man marking can be exposed by people running with the ball uh, as well as you know smart passing and movement and to be honest I thought it was probably about half and half between those things which exposed exposed us last night I, they, they did they did use their elite dribbling in really smart areas to, to create space um both in you know the mid- middle and an hour back third but at the same time simple things like strikers dropping off like um like players making movement towards their own goal to pull our marking out to create a space behind them were just as effective as, as, as dribbling. I'm not really sure whether man marking or zonal marking is the issue here. I think the, the issue last night was partly to do with the quality of City's play and partly to do with the fact that our players so often get caught got caught ball watching and and not tracking not tracking the movement of their man effectively. So I think I think I think when man marking goes wrong, it looks ugly. Um and, and it did look ugly several times last night. Um but at the same time, as I said before, you know, when when we got knocked over six nil by Wednesday and five one at home by Bolton and blah blah all the rest of those performances which are which are historic high scoring games against us we were using zonal systems in all of those games and 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 nobody was going oh that's because it's a zonal system we were, we were saying it's because the players are not as good as they should be and and I think that I think that um to to a degree yet yeah, man marking is problematic if we were playing a zonal system and we got turned over seven nil. Last night, would people be saying, well, we should be doing more man marking? I think there is probably some truth in that. Um, I think for me, the issue is more that we can't control the ball and that that, that we were trying to um, play out through a press, which we just simply weren't going to get through last night. And therefore, we caused ourselves a lot of moments in defensive transition, which expose our man marking. I think I think I would say that that was more of an issue last night than man marking inherently of itself. I'm taken back to last season, the beginning of last season in particular, when we went through that that moment where we were all sort of forelock tugging about whether or not after the six two against Manchester United, um, and and those games, I think we had the Frank Lampard Chelsea win around there as well. All these questions about whether or not we should be we should be giving up with this whole man-marking system, whether or not Leeds should go a little bit more defensive, whether or not there should be a plan B. And there's a few things I want to say. First thing first thing is is that last season, it, we were fine in the Premier League. The issue was is that when you, to a certain extent, man-marking gets to a point where it just drops off a cliff against good teams for all the reasons that you said. So mainly because, you know, once you go man-for-man, if you have elite uh, players in pretty much every position, in the individual matchups, you're just going to, you're going to win your, your your battle every time and dribble past them, and then obviously because we have a, a deficiency up front and a, and an over over at the back, we just end up solving problems by moving players around, and uh, obviously you you end up ball well everyone starts converging on the ball as the closer you get to the goal, and so you start having players free in wide areas, whatever. That's that's generally what happens, but I think that was fine it was all well and good last season and um i think we we were i know that we did switch to be a little bit more um reticent in our in our aggression as as a team and we had as we talked about a lot in in this podcast just Stuart Dallas sitting as more of a zonal marker but we've seen that this season and it's not 
worked. Um, so I, I think that sort of, again, complexifies the issue. So it's not just simply the, the man marking issue there. Um, the thing, the the thing for me has been that what what has changed this season isn't necessarily the man marking. It's the it's the ability of the squad to do that. Um, and we, yeah, I think we were fine last season. We we've not been fine this season, and a lot of that comes down to um, the the personnel involved. Now we can argue that you know, okay, we've we it, we can argue till the cows come home about whether or not we've ground the the squad down and whether or not. Um, the the system is necessarily too intensive, um, and maybe a maybe a zonal system wouldn't have that qu- quite that effect on it. Uh, but that's not the issue with man marking so much as an issue with squad management uh, as well. So I've said a lot of things there. I don't know if you have any any things you wanted to come back on. No, I think I, I think I broadly ag- agree with that. And we I know we are going to come on to talk about what we can do to change some of the issues that we're experiencing at the moment. And and uh, but yeah, I, I think yeah. I think that that phrase that you used, I, don't, I can't remember whether it was before or after we went on air about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think we've got to be really careful not to do that. Um, and one thing we know is that Bielsa isn't going to change from a man-marking system to a zonal system. If if we know anything about Marcelo Bielsa, what last night's result is going to make him do is double down on man-marking and <laughs> really kind of work harder to, to get that right. For and, and whether that works or whether it doesn't work or whether it's effective or it isn't will we'll probably come down more to the quality of the players that we face than it will any tactical decisions that Bielsa makes. Yeah, and one final thing, I guess, it, it's felt to me in the last couple of games that we've not really been strictly man-marking anyway. I felt that we, we've been quite passive, particularly in the first half of the Chelsea game, uh, where they were fairly happy to just leave Thiago Silva on the ball and, and not really push forward until he was in, in the opposition half, things like that. I mean, it's still a man-marking system, but it's not a high-press, aggressive man-marking system. Um, and and I think the same is true yesterday of of, of Manchester City. I think there was, there was times when we were seeing... Well, it was still a man marking system, but it wasn't it wasn't the the sort of high press that we saw, particularly in the second half against Chelsea, where actually we caused them quite a few problems, I thought. So um that needs to be um a caveat as well that you know the the man marking can work in certain scenarios. There's been games this season where it has worked. So I think a lot of the time we get mad about the man marking system because it's an easy thing to sort of as a lightning rod to 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 attract all of the criticisms when I think there's probably a lot more going on beneath the surface than just that. Yeah, and our our press works when it's well coordinated and when everyone does it and when we all go at it at the same time. So if, if you think about the first 15 minutes against Palace, if you think about times in the second half against Chelsea, there was a real intensity to the to the way that the team pressed as a as a cohesive unit. Um and I I I felt there were times yesterday when we were trying to get in, trying to get the press working, but but that that what was ended up happening was that maybe we were just leaving Dan James chasing between the two centre-backs that maybe one of the midfielders would try join the press, but they would be a bit reticent because they knew what they were leaving behind them. Um, so I, I don't feel like we didn't try to press yesterday. I just feel like the, the the quality of the play that we came up against really kind of made gave the whole team pause for thought about whether to commit as fully to it as they would ordinarily do. They would just pass it around the first line of pressure and then play it into a relatively empty midfield and, and overload and yep. and be away. So yeah, but again, I think that's just a that's just part and parcel of playing against a team who are more more elite player for player, and that's that's kind of what the system encourages right the the whole point of the system is that against 
relatively similar teams in terms of quality wise it gives us an edge it gives us this outlier status that we're talking about but every once in a while you just come up against an elite team and you, you don't have any chance of, of of doing anything without a bit of a miracle like we saw last season at the Etihad but let's move on question three um so not just our pressing, but Manchester City obviously employed a high press and went man-to-man. And I mentioned how it's similar to the approach that the Arsenal took when we played them at the um, Emirates last season. Um, AW got in touch on Twitter and said, we, need, we do need to discuss how will we ever break the press. It's almost every game now and we know Arsenal will do the same. It's becoming like attack versus defence practice match. Uh, and it's a good question. I think um, maybe one of the reasons why we've been worse this season as well has been that there are certain blueprints to success against causing Leeds problems and this high man-for-man press that, that we're seeing um, is one of them. We saw Kevin De Bruyne was playing pretty high up in, in when Leeds were trying to build up from the back and uh, making sure that Diego Llorente didn't have much space and time on the ball. Um, and, and then um, City were doing some smart things behind that to make sure that they were covering Adam Forshaw. Um, there wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a straight man-for-man press, but um, what they were doing was making sure that there was always someone on both centre-backs um, and, and that causes us a problem every, every time. So what's your take on, on the way that we d- deal with this high press? <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I suspect I'd be uh, in, in employment as a as a as a an elite football coach rather than as a charity manager. Um, yeah, I, I really I really don't know, John, and and I know we've talked about it a lot on on this podcast um, because it, it does cause us endless endless problems. I think I think there are times when we when we play longer. Um, and that that there have been occasions, particularly last season, when that was more effective. And I don't think we seem. Well, I don't think we're doing that as much this season. I think what we're doing is we're trying to find ways to play out, running out of ideas, and then trying a longer ball rather than starting from the starting point of well, we're just going to be a bit more pragmatic. We're going to maybe 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 it's about variation. So so sometimes choosing to go long quickly rather than. Been forced into going long because we've run out of options in terms of just shuttling the ball around the back. Um, one of the, one of the things I noticed just about the way that that City play. If you watch if you watch them in build up when they're being pressed, it's always really obvious to them what the next pass is because that because they kind of they move up up the pitch as a unit. Whereas I think what we tend to do is we split into two units of five. The back five will do some build up and they will try and then involve some of the the, the more forward players into it. And there's, none of this is new. We've spoken about all of this before. Um, and and I think that that does mean that we end up playing it around at the back until one of our players, usually Luke Aileen or Urente, tries quite a speculative ball. And if if um, the the opposition's marking scheme is smart or they're able to read those passes well, they will then double up on the player that that's coming to and almost invariably will come away with the ball themselves. So I think, yeah, I think there's there's something about variation. There's something about trying to kind of unify the two units of the team together in build-up. And... Yeah, other than that I'm I'm a bit I'm at a bit of a loss to be honest. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the only thing I would add is better players in in the build up. Uh, I think yeah. we're we're being held back a little bit by some of our players in terms of what they can do off the ball um on the ball, sorry. Which like again, what do you do? And I suppose this again comes down to big questions being asked about the system. Like if you can't if you can't afford to bring in players who are able to build up in that way, um then then should you be playing this system? Um, and I think, again, my answer to this will always be, well, it gives us an edge against 
similar teams um and that's that's kind of my cop-out answer to it uh, but also it has given us an edge in the past against better teams as well you know like like in the in the city game at ellen road last year which i know we always talk about because i think it's a bit of a bit of an a, a bit of an outlier game but we were able to to take them on in a game and go at them and cause them a lot of problems um and i know that city were in a transitional phase moving between tactical systems at that time and i think that did influence what happened in that game but i think it does yeah it gives us an edge against similar teams but i think it can also improve our chances of taking something from big games except on those occasions where it doesn't and then it goes ugly yeah no of course question four again i'm going to go to a listener question for this but we've had quite a few questions from our listeners about how do you fix the problems and uh, we've we've tried to talk a uh, about them a few times in this podcast already but Dan Holdsworth wrote quote Leeds are quite boring to watch this season the team don't really generate much excitement anymore do you think the players are bored of the same old messages same training drills is this season mostly down to staleness if so does Bielsa have it in his gift to change that um, so yeah how would you go about answering that question I think what I would say is that I think this comes down to decisions that were made in the summer about about what sort of recruitment to do and how much to churn the squad and what what level of engagement that we were going to go into the market with i think if i think with a with a smart purchase in each in each unit of the team i think we would have had a decent chance of getting enough churn enough freshness enough new enthusiasms into into the into the squad to kind of overcome some of the potential issues of staleness of repetition of you know, players playing in the same system for th- for, for the three and a half years. Um, so I th- I think that, and we we you know we talked about it a lot in the summer. We and and on this channel, you and you Hobbsy and and Joe ran a really great series looking at, at players that would uh, that would benefit the system and who could bring some of that freshness and new and new ability and new surprises uh, in the way that they play into the into the system. Unfortunately, the 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 club decided to go very light on. On recruitment, by and large, and to only really, you know, they really prioritised bringing a left back in, and and that was something that we all wanted to do. I think we were all crying out for for more midfield options, and I think we all agreed that the signing that was eventually made for the front line wasn't one that was necessarily going to solve any of the prob- problems. Now, it's not to say that Dan James hasn't got a hasn't got ability and qualities because he clearly has but I think we I think what we all considered on this channel is that that he's not the right player to solve some of the issues that we had so I think I think we missed a lot of opportunities I guess is what I'm getting at and and whether Bielsa will now have the opportunity um to resolve some of that perceived staleness who knows um because we don't know what is what he's thinking is about whether he'll be here next year if he does will he will he double down on his squad approach i suspect he probably would so we would see some churn but probably not to the level that we would need in order to really kind of reinvigorate the playing staff that's kind of where i'm with it i don't know what you think john yeah i feel as i've been pretty consistent in in my criticism and and that has been the the club misread last season as being a general season when it was a bit of an outlier season with COVID etc uh, and I think they took too much for granted in terms of how well we performed last season I think towards the end of last season I I took a, a fair amount of critique for being for being quite pessimistic about actually the underlying numbers and suggested that we were getting away with a lot on the defensive side uh, and I think we've also not taken into account the fact that we are now in it's, uh, this is no longer Kansas anymore Toto territory right which is which is Bielsa going into a fourth season for the first time in his domestic career and I think that you know that 
has raised questions about the impact of of the high intensity on on the team and i know a lot of people like to fall back and say oh covid this and and whatever we've just been unlucky with with injuries but in my mind it's there's a clear correlation between the style of football we play the poor recruitment that we've had and now the sorts of issues we're having in terms of being able to manage the squad in the middle of a season and i think that's on bielsa it's on the club and i i think we got away with a lot for a while and and then everything went wrong all at once and and we're sort of we're living in that um, lack of foresight I think um, but it is what it is I, I for me I don't think it's down to staleness I think it's I think it's simply we just don't have the pieces to put out a team that can, can compete now at the level that we were last season um, so the solution to that is what do we do next season with with bringing in players what do we do this January with bringing in players and um, yeah I think well, I don't. I don't want to be too negative, but I think next season is going to be a big season. It's not. It's not just a case of oh, can we stay up this season? Um, all all football clubs have to think about cycles of, of players and uh, and of the long term. And I think this this season is really going to set us back in a longer term planning uh, point of view. So a lot of it, I think, depends on what happens with Bielsa in the summer. If we keep Bielsa, I think we need to do a lot of squad churn. And I don't even know if we'll be able to do it enough, whether or not we'll be able to bring in the right players and, and whether or not it will be enough to sort of overhaul things. If not, you've got the big thing that we've just seen Palace go through, which is bring in a new manager, got half the team and then you've got to choose who you keep who you get rid of and you've got to choose who you bring in and those are big decisions and if that goes wrong then yeah anything can happen as well so yeah there's a there's a lot hanging on the future and I don't mean to sound miserable about it but I do think that we've this isn't this isn't just a, a team of players who have just lost the will to play the football that they're playing because believe me footballers just don't they don't think that way it's it's very much about not being able to do what we're doing right and and the question is like how do we get back to what we were doing and I I think for me it's smart planning and bringing players in and maybe changing manager I don't know but yeah I, I guess when I thought about when staleness I was thinking more about that that kind of more about it being a cycle that we've got too many players at the end of their cycle all in the squad at the same time rather than a lack of will as you know or, or anything like that I think that that is kind of how I um how I was thinking about it but yeah I agree I think it will be really interesting to see what we do in January and whether whether the stubborn old goat doubles down on his on his current mood music of well we don't need to bring anyone in because we've got these players yeah and I think it's going to be really fascinating seeing how the relationship between Victor Orta and Bielsa develops in the next six months because I suspect that Victor Orta is now getting to a point where he realizes that he is going to have to make decisions that may alienate Bielsa and so I suspect that if we see a lot of activity in January then we may see Bielsa leaving in the summer Um, but that's just speculation right now but I think that a lot of the reason why Bielsa's never stayed at a club for longer than three seasons two seasons I don't think um, there is because I think the club hierarchies realize that he is going to just ruin the squad and they and they that sort of generates these micro issues that then become macro issues and then he leaves whereas with with us we obviously owed him so much for getting us back into the Premier League that it's obviously been hard to monitor that relationship and so it'll be fascinating to see whether or not Victor Orta risks making that relationship go stale in the in the knowledge that oh well you leave lose Bielsa but you may have the chance of saving this squad somehow uh, but again this is all speculation and something that we'll see unfold in the next uh, six months 
Let's move on to the final question, which is a bit of respite from all of this hard, heavy hitting stuff that has got us both slumped in our chairs. But maybe for you. <laughs> yeah we had a question from friend of the podcast l barker who talked about melier and i thought it'd be good to have a chat about this because because obviously you like nothing more than to talk about melier so l writes i noticed while writing the melier article last summer that she wrote for us melier's post-shot xg performance was really poor against big six when playing away from home and it seems like that's carried over to this season i'd assumed it was an inexperienced thing last season and the pressure of playing in those big games away from home affected his concentration especially as most of those games were in the first half of the season but i don't know if something else is happening just to clarify post-shot xg is xg that takes into account the the where the ball is going after it's been hit um, so usual XG just sort of looks at variables like shot location and players around you and height of the ball and stuff like that. Post-shot XG looks at the direction the ball's taking towards the goal. So the, if, say, you clonk a ball towards the top corner, the post-shot XG will be much higher because it's more likely to go in. Um, and yeah, Melier's post-shot XG has been uh, sometimes a bit dodgy against the big six. Um I noticed yesterday that Manchester City put up 4.6 post-shot XG. So that suggests that given the, the, the way that Manchester City struck the ball, you would expect them to score about 4.6 goals. So still under seven, but um, yeah, I guess it, it's it's off a little bit. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Darren. This is an interesting question uh, for me because because when I, when I looked at... I'd seen some comments on Twitter last night. As I said, I wasn't able to watch the game live, but I'd seen some comments on Twitter about Melier being badly at fault for for the first three goals, and when I watched it this morning, I really don't think he was. Um, I don't. I really don't think he was at fault for the first three goals. I mean, I th- I, th- I think that that what happens against these these you know bigger clubs um, is that you've got elite ball strikers like Kevin De Bruyne is free in space, and and particularly last night, those the you know that the all of more or less all of the shots were taken without any great pressure on the ball and they took those opportunities as you were, as you would expect elite players to do and I'm not you know I think I think that I think that what you see when when you come up against players like Mo Salah like Kevin De Bruyne like Phil Foden like Jack Grealish whoever it might be is that, that they are going to find um, many and varied ways to embarrass a goalkeeper, and and I know I've said this a lot of times on the podcast, but but I I really do believe that bad defending makes for bad goalkeeping, um, because the, because if you leave a goalkeeper exposed on that many occasions, eventually they're going to make make mistakes. And I don't think Melier particularly did make mistakes last night. I think he could potentially have done better on the one where De, I think De Bruyne's one on one with him, and he slides into the near post but that's only because people say you should never get beaten at your near post but but I'm not particularly I don't particularly buy into that as a rule because there's a, there's a, you know an, an enormous goal to cover and the, the near post is only one part of it and um so I but I think that was the only one where he could have done potentially better like the Grealish header was very close to him he get he, he gets a hand on it but I wouldn't really expect him to to be able to stop that so I think I think it's just the frequency and number of shots that he's facing and the quality of the players that he's up against that kind of decide it in those in those big six games in those top level games I don't really think there's anything more fundamental or anything different um, in terms of that the one thing that I will say about Melier in those games is that I think that um, his on ball work his distribution could could really improve in those games because I think quite often his um, and we saw it again last night that that when he's trying that 
that same chip, that same 40 to 50 yard chip out to Jack Harrison or out to the, the fullback who are usually being marked by two players, that's always going to put the team under pressure. So I think collectively they need to find some different ways of working the distribution from the goalkeeping area so that we reduce the number of times that he's having to face shots in, in defensive transitions where the players are just unmarked. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think just a, a caveat is the post-shot XG, the variables that he used are quite uh, rudimentary, I think. I don't think they even, especially for Statsbomb, I don't even think they take into account goalkeeper position. So those are very, very rudimentary metrics. And do they take into account the power of the shot? I, I think they'll take into account the speed, yeah. Right, okay. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, but again like there's so many other variables that come into it like you said um one of the things about the the games against top six sides is that we generate i think outlier chances compared to compared to the average which is you know as you've said like kevin de bruyne getting the ball in about four meters of space around him and just pinging it as hard as he can um with uh, diego urente ends up sort of going over it and i'm sure that was hard to read as well and it was just hit so hard and i think if you do the eye test on most of those goals you don't really think you know what Melier's really let himself down there or let the team down there. I don't ever feel that way. And I'm like you. I think the only worries I have about Melier are distribution. That's it. I don't think that in terms of his handling, I just don't worry about it at all. I think that he's perfectly adequate. And there's been enough games where he's saved us in those games where we are not, where we have a chance of winning rather than games like this where you're just, look, you put up, we put up whatever, we they put up whatever it was, three point. 3 point something XG, 4.6 post-shot XG. Like, who's quibbling? They, we put up basically zero post-shot XG. It's not like if Melier saves the Kevin De Bruyne near post-shot, suddenly we've got a chance of winning. I just don't think that's the case. So, yeah, yeah, I don't particularly worry about these things. No, and I, I do maintain that he was at fault for the first Chelsea goal last week, so it's not like I'm loath to criticise him because I know that is something that has been said about me in the past. I don't, I, I'm very happy to say when he's made a mistake, I just don't think he was at fault for any of the goals, particularly yesterday, and, and I agree with you. I think that, that right now uh, Melier is just about the least of our problems. Yeah, I realised that we said we weren't going to talk very much about the City game and we've spoke 40 minutes about the City game, so save us from ourselves, Darren, and get us talking about Arsenal. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so this week, John spoke to Lewis Ambrose of One Football and Ask Blog, and uh, Lewis asks the question once more. Is Mikel Arteta actually any good? So, Lewis, hi, how are you? 
I'm not too bad, John. Thanks for having me back on. It's, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, it's great having you on and uh, looking forward to talking about Arsenal, who I think are quite a curious club at the moment. Um, it's been quite an odd season. At times, you've looked like you're pushing for the top four, but then sometimes when you look at the underlying numbers, I'm less sure about how good you are. So what's your take on where Arsenal are at this season? The underlying numbers play tricks sometimes and I don't I think that Arsenal this season at least are one of those cases where it's it, they don't really tell you anything um obviously there's we've been absolutely battered by Manchester City and by Liverpool away from home and then there's the question of whether or not you just sort of discount those results a little bit um and, and the amount of impact they have on the underlying numbers then obviously you watch other teams like Aston Villa at the weekend uh hold Liverpool for almost the entire game um, and you think, well, like, should we really be just writing those games off and not being ambitious about them? The the really interesting thing, and I know your listeners, you know, are interested in, in stats and analytics and stuff like that. So the really interesting thing for me about Arsenal is um, we have the fourth best expected goal difference per 90 when the game state is not above or below a, a goal. So at one down, at nil-nil or one all, whatever, um, and at a goal up as well, we have the fourth best expected goal difference per 90 in the league. Um, if we, or when we've been plus two, plus three, or minus two, minus three, we have the third worst expected goal difference in the league. Um, I, I don't know what that means. Uh, I, I think Arsenal are pretty good and pretty comfortable when the game is close and it's been an unfortunate thing that I think during Mikel Arteta's reign that games have been quite boring because it feels like he wants games to be quite close and obviously then variance comes into it and if you just don't take the one big chance or one of the two big chances that you make in a game you leave yourself as exposed to to losing no matter how good the opposition are so I think it's a problem um I think it's a feature, not a bug, and it's it's a bit strange to watch. And yeah, you will get games or flurries in games where this looks like a really good team, but I think they're probably right now a, a slightly above average Premier League team, but with the with with the ability to play like a Champions League contender for one game and then or for part of one game and then play like one of the worst teams in the league for <laughs> the next part of the very same game. Unfortunately. Yeah, you anticipated my next question, which is that one of the criticisms of Arsenal this season has been that they've tended to sit off opponents when they're ahead. Do you agree with that criticism? Uh, I agree that it happens. Um, I, I think, so in my Arsenal bubble, I think the criticism is is sort of, the, the fact it's a criticism implies that it's a choice. Um, and that's where that argument loses me a little bit. I think it's a massive problem the way Arsenal play, uh, you know, with the narrow leads recently at Everton and at Old Trafford, and we lost both games, and we were really poor after, we, I mean, at Everton especially, we were poor before going one, one goal up, but we were really poor after going a goal up, and the same had happened a few days earlier at Old Trafford, uh, where we'd gone a goal up and started the game pretty brightly. And then played really, really poorly. Just looked like we're inviting pressure. I, I think the issue is more that Arsenal are bad at pinning teams back. And I don't think Arsenal choose to sit back and, and sit off and be under pressure. And just sort of try and defend on their own 18-yard line after going ahead. 
but they don't. I think you to to avoid that situation when a team's chasing a goal, you do need to have some sort of mixture or combination of being good at pressing higher up the pitch and being good at retaining possession higher up the pitch. And obviously, we we all want to be competing for for better things for Europe and then Champions League and then the league title. And if you look at those teams right at the top of the league, City and Liverpool is a, a mixture of possessing the ball and pressing the opposition and suffocating them deep in their own half. I think Chelsea are a little bit more to the to the side of the spectrum where it's more about keeping possession and, and making the pitch big and making sure the other team can't get near you and, and hurt you. Arsenal haven't been convincing with either so I think I don't think it's a choice to sit off uh, but I think it accidentally and and consistently happens because they're not good enough uh, at pressing high up the pitch and or keeping the ball high up the pitch and pinning teams back. So with all that in mind what are your expectations for the rest of the season where do you think that Arsenal will end up finishing? I, I think this team could win six or seven in a row and and the end of January is the favourites to finish fourth and I think they could lose six or seven in a row and we can write off finishing in Europe or in the European places again um, my expectation as a as a fan removed from trying to analyse anything my expectation would be after two seasons in a row in eighth Arsenal have to finish higher than that and Arsenal have to finish in a, in a position where they're in Europe again next season. I mean, we we're only a few years ago, it was almost unthinkable that Arsenal wouldn't play in the Champions League. And now we're, we're not in Europe at all this season um, for the first time in over 20 years, well over 20 years. So it's it's sort of unthinkable. And that's when I think Mikel Arteta will be struggling for his job is if we uh, if we were to miss out on European football again this year. I'd like to talk about to our guests about the transfer window in the summer, but I guess it feels a long, long way away now. So uh, what I'll ask you is, uh, in terms of the, the summer that you've had, you obviously had a very busy window. Who are the signings who've stood out for you so far from the ones you signed? It's never nice to admit that you think your goalkeeper's been really good, because I think it suggests he's been really busy. Um, <laughs> but Aaron Ramsdale's not only been really good, but been really good off the back of, I think, basically everybody thinking that this was a bad deal um about 30 million for for a goalkeeper in his early 20s is obviously a, a huge amount of money um but he's and especially when you consider he's got so, basically his entire career ahead of him he's been worth every penny so far he's been really really good at in the sort of traditional goalkeeper things um he, he's a better claiming the ball than Burnt Leno and, and sort of killing attacks that way by actually commanding his area especially set pieces and things like that um, and his distribution's been superb as well. I know it's become, amongst non-Arsenal fans, a bit of a joke that Arsenal fans have maybe made a bit of a meal of his performances this season. But he has genuinely been been very impressive for the most part. Um, and his kicking is absolutely incredible. To real defence-splitting passes and turning defence to attack in, in a matter of seconds. So he's sort of the standout. Nuno Tavares is also, I think, is nowadays we all know so much about players or, or we can look up so much about players and tell ourselves we know so much about them uh, before they've even joined our clubs and you don't get many players that are sort of very surprising anymore Nuno Tavares and has definitely been that I think he's a very a bit of a diamond in the rough and not sure anyone quite knew how good he would be or how ready he'd be to to play much football this season and you know he's, he's a young defender so there are going to be slip-ups and things like that um but 
at the same time, he had a run of form so good while Kieran Tierney was injured that people were wondering, should Kieran Tierney even get back in the side? So I think that's um, another really exciting one for us over the next few years to look out for. Let's talk a, a little bit about Mikel Arteta. Obviously, you've had him for a while now, but where are you at with him in terms of his managership of Arsenal? I find it really difficult to say. I, I think it's the it's one of the least black and white cases that that I can think of of pretty much anything, not just managers, but players or signings or anything like that. There have been signs of improvement, but they're gradual, or it's a case of you know two steps forward and or two steps back quite a lot of the time. I I wouldn't if I was looking from outside. I don't know how you feel as a non Arsenal fan, but I don't think and this is one of those things that you sort of talk about Solskjaer while he was in charge of Man United I don't think any other Premier League club would rush to appoint Mikel Arteta if he lost his job and I think that says something um, about the job that he's done we've had a big refresh of the squad we're the, we're the youngest team in the league by far now and then you want to give that a bit of time to to bed in but even though all the personnel have changed we still have the same problems that we had when he first took over so at some point you start to wonder: Does he is does he not just have the answers? Does he not have the ability to to find the solutions? So we don't you know create enough chances. Um, we don't you know the, it's a very strict positional play, but we play you know there's not enough rotations. There's not enough getting players into space. It's all a bit too orchestrated, um, and yeah, maybe maybe we are lacking a little bit of quality to really make the difference in the final third but also maybe you should be able to to do that with your tactics instead of I know setting up if if people want to look at him in his past working for Pep Guardiola if well we can't go and buy four of the greatest attackers in world football so if that's the only way to make the system work then it's the wrong system for our club I, I don't think I don't think there's been enough reason to sack him and that he should sort of Arsenal should be moving on already, but I also don't think anyone could complain, including him, if he did lose his job in the near future, um, which puts you in this sort of awkward halfway house a little bit. So, how would you describe Arteta's tactical style to someone who'd never watched Arsenal during his tenure? Very orchestrated, I think, quite slow, considered. Um, players encouraged to to take risks with the ball and especially building up the real considered patterns of, of building up and, and trying to drag the opposition onto them so that they can sort of break into spaces behind. And, and once they do, and when they do break that press, that's when Arsenal look their most dangerous and, and how we've scored quite a few goals this season. When teams sit off, uh, there's, you know, those that luck of rotations between players in their positions sort of hamstrings us a little bit and means that we can't create chances. Defensively, I think it's been a bit of a surprise for us because you expect him to arrive and be like Pep Guardiola, or at least want that sort of same football as Pep Guardiola. And I think with the ball, he does. Um, without the ball, it, it's more David Moyes, another old boss of his, if you like. Um, it, it's more get behind the ball and and stay or try to stay compact which is a little bit weird. And I think as a, from a tactical perspective, the two don't really mesh together because obviously you, you're not in position to, 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 to press the ball as soon as you lose possession and when it keep high, keep high up the pitch. As I was talking about earlier, the big problem when we've had the leading games and we can't pin teams back. I, I think that goes hand in hand a little bit with the defensive approach not quite 
fitting the the on-ball approach that we have. So it's a strange one. It's a strange mix of identities. Um, but after all this time, and I think for a while, we all sort of wondered, is this what he wants? Or is this just with the players that we have? Or he doesn't have time yet to implement something different. I think after this amount of time, we have to sort of say that is probably just how he wants Arsenal to set up. In terms of how Arsenal look this season, do you think there's any changes that you've noticed this season from last season? Has anything has anything stood out to you in particular in terms of a tweak from Arteta? I think we're more wedded to a certain shape, at least. I think that he, he spoke last year about not having sort of the specificity of players to play the way that he wants the team to play. I think you see when they've bought Tomiyasu in the summer, he he fits that right-back role a lot better than the players who were there before, Hector Bellerin and, and Cedric Suarez especially. So he sort of plays this, going back to Pep Guardiola, this sort of role that Kyle Walker plays for Manchester City where he becomes a, almost a third centre-back or a, or a third central midfielder. So Tomiyasu is, is much more defensive-minded than a, than a sort of traditional wing-back that's just a little bit more obvious now that that's definitely what Arteta wants us to do and that's definitely him not compromising with with the players at his disposal. Ahead of him, I think there's... I don't think there's a change to last season. I think there's a change to the first half of last season when yeah, there was a lot of three at the back and there was a lot of Aubameyang out wide. That's something we don't really see anymore. Um, we play four at the back. We we still have you know the the left back overlapping, but instead of having a, a striker on the left, if you like, in in Aubameyang, there's more of a midfielder in Emil Smith Rowe who who'll come in and, and join up play, and he's really important to Arsenal because it's like the the game just accelerates every time he gets the ball. He makes decisions quickly. Everything moves forward. And I think there's not enough of that naturally in the way that we set up. So Smith-Rowe playing from the left has become really, really important to us over the last few months. Structurally, it looks as though Arsenal have largely played in some iteration of a back four, a back four, a three-man midfield and a front three. Uh, I did notice that you played 3-4-3 three, three against one opponent this season, but largely it's it's been that other um, uh, structure. How do you think that they're going to look against Leeds next weekend in terms of the structure? Yeah, I think that 3-4-3 was against Man City as well, um, away from home and a, a, a weird, put, weirdly put together side right before the transfer window closed. New signings hadn't quite come in yet. And it, I think we were just trying to basically hope to sit back and not concede a goal and get away with it, um, which we didn't. We got battered. Uh, and yeah, it'll be the same against Leeds. It's It's been pretty much the same all season other than that game. So... Two sort of sitting midfielders, Martin Odegaard ahead of them, but but playing slightly to the right. So it sort of looks something like a four-two-three-one, something like a four-three-three when he drops back and, and receives the ball deeper. Bukayo Saka on the right, uh, the back the back four, and the goalkeeper's been consistent now. And in Ramsdale, Tomiyasu, uh, Ben White, Gabriel, and and Kieran Tierney on the left. The big questions probably who plays up front. Um, Emmerich Aubameyang has been stripped of the captaincy now. Um, we don't know when he'll be back in the squad, if he'll ever be back in the squad. Um, so Alex Lacazette probably plays up front and then you've sort of got 
a couple of positions between Odegaard, Smith-Rowe and, and Martinelli and obviously one of them has to miss out. It's interesting that I think we've played, it feels like we've played Arteta's Arsenal just so many times as Leeds. Obviously we played pretty soon after he'd been appointed in the FA Cup when Leeds were still in the Championship and then we obviously played in the Carabao Cup this time around as well. In the second game between Leeds and Arsenal last season in the league, Arsenal caused Leeds a lot of problems in their build-up by going man-for-man and pressing quite high, which I was quite surprised with given I mean, a lot of what you've said in this in this conversation so far. But do you think we'll see a repeat of that tactic in this game? I would have said yes if we were playing at home um, at Elland Road. I expect the slightly more passive version of Arsenal to to turn up and for the team to, to hope to break Leeds down or cause Leeds issues by drawing the Leeds press on and playing through it rather than trying to force errors at the other end of the pitch. Just in terms of some of the players, uh, there's interesting conversations to be had about Granit Xhaka straight back into the team after his return from injury. Uh, he's obviously a bit of a Marmite figure for Arsenal fans and I think generally Premier League fans too, but would you say this is a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, um, I wouldn't. Is that... <laughs> um, I think Granit Xhaka, Arsenal just it sort of sums up the a big problem that that Arsenal have had the last few years. I think nobody's thought that they're going to get back to the levels that we want to be at with Granit Xhaka in midfield, but we've still not found a way to be a better team without him. Um, particularly true of, of the big money signing from last summer, Thomas Partey in midfield, who seems a lot more comfortable and, and seems to play a lot better when, when Xhaka's alongside him. We've, yeah, we've not found a player who can, who can do the things Xhaka does for us um, without doing the things that, we don't like about the way he plays. Um, so it's sort of a catch-22. Uh, at some point, they're going to have to cut loose and move on from Granit Xhaka, but he just seems to keep coming back. And in terms of the centre-forward issue, you've already mentioned Aubameyang being stripped of the captaincy for, for various rumoured reasons, but... Um, it seems generally that Arsenal have a problem in that position uh, in that you've got two ageing and expensive players in that position. Um, so what's your sort of general take at the moment with with where Arsenal are at with their centre forwards? I think we're treading water a little bit. I think we're waiting for next summer. to The, the team has, the last couple of transfer windows, had a massive refresh and need to go back two years, uh, there's basically nobody left um, who, who's still playing. I mean, the, the entire, like the goalkeeper, the whole back four that I just named, um, party in midfield, Saka and Smith-Rowe have, have emerged. And then you've got Martin Odegaard, who was signed per, well, on loan in January and permanently in the summer. It's an entire new football team, uh, except up front um, and, and except Granit Xhaka. And I think, I think Arsenal will not do much next summer, but will sign a striker. Um, and and put basically all of the the money they have into that next year, which has put us in a weird situation now where we're just sort of waiting for that to happen. We don't have a clear first choice striker anyway. I don't think Aubameyang is the sort of striker Mikel Arteta really wants because he's not good enough at holding up the ball and and linking play and and picking passes and being really safe in possession. I think Alex Lacazette's better at that stuff, but is worse physically. He's, he's slow. He seems to tire 55, 60 minutes into every game that he starts and doesn't provide much of a threat in the box. So if you could combine the two of them, I think you'd have a lot closer to what Mikel Arteta actually wants his centre-forward to be able to do. Um, unfortunately, we'd sort of stuck between two strikers who aren't even alike. So when one of them plays and the other one doesn't, we have to change the way we play around the striker a little bit. 
um, depending on who's up front. Yeah, it's a weird situation. Um, and as I say, it's almost sort of like you're, you've got a bit of a lame duck, whichever one plays, um, a bit of a lame duck situation up front. Leeds fans are always interested to hear about Ben White. So what have you made of him so far for Arsenal? Well, I, I wanted to ask you about Ben White and <laughs> what you make of him. My comments on Ben White will be caveated by the fact that he was absolutely perfect for what we needed in the championship. Um, I have turned on a few Arsenal games recently and seen him maybe not not necessarily being responsible for goals, but being involved in moments that lead to goals where he's one-on-one and doesn't manage to close down shots uh, well enough. I think he's um, a player who sometimes is it can be a little bit um, weak on his offside so he's he's um, good good defending to his right maybe a little less good defending to his left but I think he's always been defensively a little bit suspect and I, we obviously didn't see a huge amount of that in the championship when Leeds were dominating so much so um, by way of context I don't know if you would agree with some of the stuff I've said there yeah pretty much I think you I think when you spend that much money on a centre-back nowadays you, you almost do it for what they can do with the ball um more than or that that's a massive part of it anyway and I really enjoy what Ben White can do on the ball uh the way he, he drives into midfield and and attracts players and and then drifts past them I think is I'm sure something you've seen plenty of um it's, it's effective and also very enjoyable to watch so I, I think he's excellent at that I think at the at the top Premier League level there are obviously questions about his physicality a little bit I think that's a big thing for Arsenal fans. When you spend that much money on a centre-back, you expect a, an all-conquering, dominant kind of player. Um, I think most people are quite surprised when they hear that he's, that he's six foot or, or just over six foot because he doesn't have that sort of build or that stature at all. Um, and, and he definitely doesn't sort of physically dominate opponents. And and there have been a few moments of rash defending. Um, I think you know, either in those situations that you said, either not closing a down, sh- uh, closing down a shot quickly enough or sometimes a bit too quickly. Uh, and one of the goals at Old Trafford was like that. I think he sort of slid across um, and, and and was dummied past before. Um, oh no, sorry, at Anfield and, and at Old Trafford, he just didn't, didn't seem to read the danger from a, from a low cross and, and let Cristiano Ronaldo get away from him a little bit. Um, Diogo Jota scored a lovely goal at Anfield, but, uh, but White, slid right across and um didn't seem to anticipate that that Jota was was calm and composed and not rushing to get his shot away so i think that you know he's he's still young and there's room for improvement but also i think there are lessons that he that are learnable and, and teachable and the mistakes that he will learn from i also think the partnership with Gabriel makes sense because Gabriel is quite physically imposing and and dominant in the air so i think they can sort of play off each other quite well and it's a a, a combination a a defensive partnership that makes a lot of sense that fits together quite naturally and yeah I I like Ben White and I'm not completely in love with his performances so far this season but he's young in a in a new team with new defenders around him so I do sort of have faith that he'll improve as time goes on as the season goes on Mm, yeah for sure totally agree with your assessment um, in terms of the game itself, do you have any injuries or suspensions ahead of it? Yeah, well, we've sent our captain into exile. <laughs> um, he's he's now persona uh, persona non grata, so um, that's probably not ideal. Um, 
well, he's not a captain anymore, actually. I don't know who is. I don't, nobody knows who is. Um, but he's the only one that won't play, really, um, that, well, that I don't expect to, to feature, that you'd expect. So it, it will be that sort of typical lineup thing that we've come to expect over the recent couple of months. Do you want to just run through that lineup so that so the listeners can get a sense of it? Aaron Ramsdale in goal, Tommy Asu, Ben White, Gabriel, and almost certainly Kieran Tierney at left back. It could be Nuno Tavares, um, Thomas Partey, and Granit Xhaka in midfield. Uh, Lacazette up front, Saka and on the right, and then two of Odegaard, Smith Rowe, and Gabriel Martinelli. And um, you've been on this podcast enough to know that I don't ask for predictions, but what I am interested in is where you expect the game to be won or lost at the weekend. So, what, what, how would you go about answering that question? Uh, how effectively Arsenal can can break the the Leeds press in in our own third? It's always great having you on, Lewis. So, what's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out in the football world? Yeah, catch me uh, on Twitter at LG Ambrose, and there you'll find um, my newsletter, which is um, Fussball, F U S S Ball in English, um, <laughs> where I once a week. Uh, write something about something that's happened in German football and try very hard not to just put out content about uh, Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich, <laughs> which is pretty much all you can find. Uh, the, or it's a lot of the stuff, obviously, that you can find in English. So um, I, I want to put out stuff that's not just about those two teams. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. No, thanks for having me. Interesting stuff from Lewis there. And for the record, I um, always thought Ramsdale was going to be a good signing for Arsenal. Last year, he was playing in a bad team with a bad defence. And like I've just said, bad defences make for bad goalkeepers. So I'm really pleased to see Aaron Ramsdale doing well there. Okay, let's get into this then. So in terms of the Arsenal game on Saturday at 5.30. John, how do we cobble together a team on Saturday given the the, the list of injuries, suspensions, um, and, and I'm sure that we'll find out about at least one more injury before Saturday because that's just the way it seems to work at the moment. Um, Bielsa's squad building ideas have always been a risk, right? And we've talked about this a little bit already, but, but we're really seeing the downside of Bielsa's squad building at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. We've obviously got a few injuries here and there. And um, I think people people keep saying that we have key injuries all over the place. But I think the issue is, is as soon as you have a few players out in our squad, every injury then becomes a key injury. Um, I think there's a lot of players out who wouldn't be starting, but, but for the fact that other players further up the pyramid are, are not starting. So I, I, a lot of this does come down to the small squad. Um, for me, the big question of the weekend is like, is Pascal Strauch available? Because I think that makes uh, makes the formation look quite different um, because he, as we know, he can play in three different positions and has done this season. So um, those positions will be Pascal Strauch at left back, Pascal Strauch at left centre-back, Pascal Strauch at um, central defensive midfield. I, th- I suspect if he is available, he'll play left centre-back because that solves the problem with uh, playing Llorente at left centre-back and ailing at right centre-back rather than right back. Although I would say that given that Cody Drame was brought on yesterday with a decent amount of time to go, I suspect uh, the club may be worried that, that Straug isn't available and so they may expect the, that back line to, to include Cody Drame, which, you know, is good. Right? We, we are always going to be positive about youngsters playing, but um, in a run of games that we've had um, anyway, 
yeah, it's, it's a bit of a baptism of fire for him, throwing him in at the end of Man City and getting top seven <laughs> nil to then to then go into a must-win game against Arsenal uh, as well. So yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really hoping against against all hope really that that Pascal is fit because I think him playing at left centre back and uh, alongside Urente with probably Dallas at left back and Ailing at right back would at least give the team a solid platform from the back. To, to build on which I, I really don't think that we had um yesterday um so yeah I, I i but should pascal be out i do suspect it would be cody drama uh playing at right back with alien and urente as the center backs and and, and dallas at, at uh at left back and we should also say that shackleton may be fit as well but he didn't look in a great shape when he came off yeah i i City. guess i'm considering shackleton to be out for for a yeah i, I don't think it looked like that was going to be something that was going to recover in, in time for Saturday. And it looks like a recurring injury, doesn't it? It's like one of the things we've had quite a bit this season. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, unfortunately for, for, for Shackleton, who seems to pick up an injury every single time he gets any sort of game time um, and and then gets shunted around the team to, to a degree as well. I, I, I think it's been a really difficult season for him so far. Um, okay, so we, we that's the kind of backline issues so the midfield I guess really we're looking at a, a midfield of Forshaw, Roberts and Click would you say John? Yeah I think so um, is there any other options? I mean Rodrigo may be available um, again I don't know about this, the status that, that he's at he seems to have plantar fascia issues in his in his feet um, and Dallas obviously isn't available because he'll be needed somewhere uh, in the defence yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah I think that will leave for sure Click and, and Roberts as the midfield I think that's fine I think that's a a decent pressing midfield um I yeah we'll see we'll see what Arsenal are up to they're very hard to read I think um obviously sometimes they play like their first goal against Southampton recently was just absolutely scintillating passing football all the way down the field um so one touch passing stuff so yeah you know, we've got to have our press hopefully fairly solid. Um, uh, but I think that that's probably the best iteration of midfielders um, that we could hope for, really, given that we do have injury problems, uh, for sure, sitting in the deeper role and then clicking Roberts alongside him. I've been really impressed with, with the way that Roberts has played recently, um, particularly in those sort of transitional um, pressing moments. I know a lot of people were quite critical of him yesterday with respect to his marking of Rodri, uh, but um, I made a... Uh, my tactics video looking at the pressing patterns that we were using against Chelsea and I think we're trying to use a lot more vertical pressing patterns so he's expected to get forward and press onto centre-backs a lot more Uh, and so that just means that if City could play around it quickly the pass just went in behind him and there's not much he could do about it so um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that as a midfield three. Good. And then I guess the the key decision then is what do we do in terms of the striker role Um, and I I know what I think you would want to see John uh what do you think will happen though? Because I think we, I, you would want Gelhart to start up front rather than James, right? I mean, I think so. I don't think James offers much up front. I didn't think Gelhart offered much up front against City, but I don't think that's much of a criticism. No. Um, so if we're going to be playing a player up front who's not going to really be offering much, I'd rather it would be Gelhart developing in a, him in a position that we want to see him play in in the future. I'm happy to see Gelhart play at the moment I think it's been really exciting watching him play it's nice to have him as an option I know I've said on this podcast before that I kind of like him as a bench option coming off the bench and, and being able to disrupt and we saw a bit of that against City there was he didn't have much of the ball at all but we saw him 
pick the ball up and try and do um, beat players and do creative things. And, you know, there's so little of that in our team that it was nice to see. James just isn't really offering it as, as anything in that in that respect. In this game, yeah, maybe James is, as a wide player. Uh, I think Harrison's been... Harrison's funny, isn't he? He's, he's, been, he's been good and bad. I think he's been good in, in build-up moments in wide areas. And then when he gets into the box, he just seems to, his brain just seems to turn to yogurt. And he just, his decision-making, I suppose, is a word that people use. But actually, I was thinking about this yesterday, watching City. It's not, I don't even think it's decision-making. I think it does come down to ability. And um, the Manchester City players just all have the ability to do ridiculous things on the ball. So they can do stuff which looks like foresight. Um, but really, it's just in, insane ability. And I think maybe with Harrison... Because he, and same with James as well, to be honest, because they don't have the ability to do that je ne sais quoi moment. Like James, for example, is very, very one dimensional. Like you can look at a situation and almost guess what he's going to do. He sort of works his way down a checklist of can I go down the outside? Can I pull the ball back across them? If I can't, can I play it back to the fullback? With Harrison, I would probably like to prefer to see him over James on the left at the moment. But I think, yeah, I think we're in a situation where Bielsa probably starts James and brings Gelhart on at half time again. I don't know. Maybe he's been impressed by, by Gelhart in, in training and in murder ball and stuff. And that stuff obviously has an impact on his decision making but for me it's much of a muchness right James Harrison on, in the left wing area I do think Gelhart offers more in the uh, up front um, so yeah particularly in a particularly in a game where he's up against someone like Ben White who um, I was a little less complimentary about in in my chat with with um, Lewis despite the fact that I think that he's one of the best on ball centre backs in the world something I neglected to say in that in that conversation but I, I do think that Gelhart would be able to cause him problems defensively so I would like to see Gelhart probably played up, up front and then Harrison James much of a muchness of me maybe one half with one one half with the other yeah I'd prefer I'd prefer Harrison to be honest uh, because whilst I agree with the criticisms of him and, and I think there have been a number of occasions in the last few games when when he's done good stuff only then to run into trouble uh, to cut back in onto his right hand side and and or, or whatever it might be and, and become and get kind of lost in a, in a in a forest of players but and we do know that he can occasionally pull something out of the bag where where he where he can where he can look like a really good player um and I, I just don't think I've seen that from from James in many very many moments at all yet apart from on the rare occasions when he has used his key attribute knocked it past somebody and run Harrison is a player who I think can do good things but rarely in the right order so the the goal that for me the Harrison goal against Liverpool the first Premier League goal strikes me as one of those moments where he just did everything right in the right order and it was obviously brilliant but the issue for him is always getting those things in the right order and making the right decisions whereas with with James I don't really see many good moments let alone many good moments in the right order if that makes sense yeah no I, I completely agree with you it was interesting that Lewis anticipates the more muted version of the Arsenal press um, because I think we're, we at All Stats are all expecting Arsenal to come up and sit right on our centre-backs and, and man-to-man markers in, in that first press. Uh, we're hoping for, for what Lewis thinks, aren't we? We're hoping for that more muted, more reserved version of Arsenal because I think that gives us a better opportunity to impose ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. We obviously came out of the first Arsenal game at Elland Road feeling a little bit let down by the result. We felt as though we were all over them. I think we played quite well. And interestingly, in the first two games in Arteta's um, tenure against Leeds, we caused them a lot of problems, I thought, in both games. And then, uh, obviously, I, even, I guess, in the first half in the... In the um, 
Carabao Cup, we we did cause some problems on there was a second team, so I think they were a little bit disjointed off the back of that. But yeah, for me, this very much depends on whether or not Arteta is bold enough to come to Elland Road and just press high and, and go for it. That will be interesting to to see that play out. Where where because uh, I'm feeling quite down on on our attacking at the moment, and I think that's partly because of a, a recency bias because we got humped seven 0 last night and didn't cause any problems for City whatsoever. And I do completely accept that that Arsenal are not City, right? They're not gonna they're not gonna do the same things to us. But but what, so where where are Arsenal vulnerable, John? Where can we get at them? Where can we hurt them? I think this is the interesting stuff that Lewis was saying about how like most teams when they go ahead they have the ability to sort of adopt a game management approach and he doesn't think that Arsenal are able to do that he doesn't think that they're able to press high hold it up he doesn't think they're able to pass it around at the back and keep it as well so um, I definitely think that there are vulnerabilities there we saw recently Arsenal go 1-0 up against Everton and end up losing that game uh, I definitely think they're gettable at um, and yeah I think that they they across the the bat line. I think they they will be not not flaky, but I do think that their their defense is vulnerable to to counter attacks. And I think that we will. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel terrible about this game. I think that there's the possibility that we could have quite we could look all right in in this game in the way that I think we looked all right in the Chelsea game. Uh, but obviously, you know, it, it comes down to the fact that. However, you look at it, Arsenal do have good players in certain positions, uh, and those players can can punish you. And so it's going to be a it's going to be the case of whether or not we we can um, keep going even a, a goal down and just kind of think. Look, Arsenal have done this in the past. They've gone a goal up and they've not really been able to manage the game. So uh, hopefully, hopefully there'll be uh, gettable at uh, moments in the game. Yeah, and I think in all of the games that we've played against him under Arteta, we've had like a good half in all of them. Even even in the the game at the Emirates last season, when I think we were four 0 down at half time, is that or four 0 down shortly after half time, one or the other anyway. Um, that that even then we managed to put them under a lot of pressure. And we managed to get them rocking and creaking, and 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 you know could could have made it a closer game. I'm not suggesting that we could or should have. have um, drawn or, or won that game but I still think that we, that we definitely had a lot of good moments in that game and that we were able to expose some of their weaknesses. There was the game where we saw a beautiful debut goal for Pascal when he boomed the header in. It was a big booming header and I, I really enjoyed him stomping all over Odegaard in that game and, and not letting him get a kick and then everyone saying that Pascal's a crap uh, defensive midfielder <laughs> despite that he'd given Odegaard nothing anyway that's last season's uh, complaints <laughs> okay so yeah I think I think we've got some some reasons to be uh, cautiously optimistic that we might that we might have a decent game on Saturday so where will the game be won or lost it's in the press right it's in Arsenal's press yeah I think so uh, depends on how they're going to come out and press um, but but beyond that I think It'll be interesting to see how we how we come out if if we are able to be if we if we're able to get on the ball and hold the ball for any extended period I think we will cause them problems at times and I think that's true of most of the games this season um, that that if we've been able to uh, get on the ball and progress it down the field into the right areas then we have caused problems but um, the, the the issue has always been like how smart our opposition's at pressing us and it doesn't always have to be a high press that causes us problems it could be a it could be a smart mid block as well which we saw with we seen with teams like Brighton uh, as well which which can cause us problems so yeah I, I think for me this is very much going to be how do we look on, in possession of the ball especially after a midweek game where we've 
you know, there was. I was watching the game back this morning, and in, in the top corner, all of those the Oracle stats pop up, and it was like every five minutes, it was like last five minutes possession, Manchester City ninety five percent, Leeds five percent. So we just didn't possess the ball at all. Um, so I think if we can come out in the in the Arsenal game and be a bit more braver in possession, if we can get through the first line of the press and we can start getting into those wide areas that we that we cause problems in, then uh, I didn't genuinely think that we we should be fairly positive about the game uh, in as far as in, in so much as we can be positive these days. And let's hope that Bielsa's given one of his magic speeches this week, eh? <laughs> and <laughs> try to, uh, you know, because if, if tactics won't do it, magic assuredly will. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, I guess I don't need to ask whether you're doing a tactical review of yesterday's <laughs> game on video, John. No, I probably won't. Um, I, I try to just do the one a week and uh, I made the executive decision that odds playing probably as well as we could expect against Chelsea was going to be more f- forthright in terms of tactical ideas than getting bent over by by uh, Manchester City. But uh, yeah, so I the, the, the Chelsea game, I had a look at the high press. I haven't looked at the high press for a while. And I just looked again at the way that we usually sort of, a high press tends to be um, generally a lateral press between the the, the back three. Uh, and this, this game, we saw quite a little bit of vertical pressing with with uh, Tyler Roberts pushing forward, um, so yeah, just having a look at where our, our high press is at. But maybe I'll do maybe I'll do something on our set pieces because I have noticed that we've been a little bit more zonal at set pieces this se- this this season. So uh, maybe I'll do a video on that at some point. But maybe I'll save that for when all the football is cancelled for a while and we've got nothing else to do. <laughs> yep, that's possibly on the horizon. Okay, uh, excellent. So I guess we'll be back on Sunday with a review of the of the Arsenal game and I'm hopeful that I'm not on with Tom Alderson on Sunday because that means <laughs> one thing and one thing only. But but I, I anticipate that, that you and I and somebody else will be around on Sunday. And other than that, enjoy the game, listeners, and have a great week. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.